1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Early Modern History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Elspeth Curry, your host today on the channel. This afternoon, we'll be talking to Dr. Owen Stanwood about his book, The Global Refuge, Huguenots in an Age of Empire, a fascinating account of migration, adaptation, religion, and empire in the 17th and 18th centuries. Owen, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks. It's great to be here.
1: So, I have the good fortune of knowing you as a faculty member here at Boston College, uh, but I wonder if you could begin by telling our audience a bit about yourself and your background.
0: Sure, yeah. Well, I'm originally from the Pacific Northwest, uh, and I, I kind of slowly moved from the history of the American West, which was what I was ri- originally interested in, uh, towards early American history. And my PhD was was uh, very kind of... Set, thoroughly centered on colonial British America. And my first book, uh, which was called The Empire Reformed, was about uh, the links between anti-Catholicism and empire building uh, in the late 17th century colonies. So I really started out uh, more interested in the British side of things and and kind of slowly from there moved in in more kind of global directions, I would say.
1: So uh, speaking of global uh, directions, in your acknowledgments, you mentioned that this book exists because of a desire to go to Switzerland. Um, So how does Switzerland play into this story? Um, What kind of first sparked your interest in the Huguenots?
0: Well, that that was a little bit tongue in cheek, but but is also partly true. Uh, I. I had been interested in Huguenots in a casual way for quite some time because I came across a lot of them when I was researching my first book. And there were kind of small sections of my first book uh, that dealt with uh, French Protestant refugees who ended up especially in New England. Uh, and, and because of this, I, I had had a, a casual conversation with another historian, Phil Benedict. Uh, who who used to be at Brown University and then taught at the University of Geneva for a while. Uh, and he was looking for someone to write about Huguenots in the British Empire. And he called me up uh, uh, and he's like, would you come and, uh, come and talk about this? And I was like, well, that sounds very interesting. I don't really know very much about it. And he's like, yeah, it's, it's a fully paid trip to uh, Switzerland and we're we're in this this former utopian colony that's overlooking a lake and, uh, you know, near the Italian border. And then I thought, OK, let me think about this again. Yeah, maybe I could come up with something to say about it. Uh, and, and part of going to that conference, which was a big conference on Huguenots, uh, actually Huguenot conceptions of history, uh, all over the world really kind of convinced me. Well, maybe this is something I could actually write a monograph about. I, it had always been kind of a side interest up until that point. Uh, so, so in that way, kind of the the desire to go to Switzerland uh, was the seed that then slowly grew into this book.
1: Well, it's a it's a great book. So I'm glad that you uh, were lured in by the appeals of uh, the Swiss. Um, but I wonder if you could start with kind of setting the scene for our listeners. Um, so your book opens um, in the 1680s. And what are the factors that are happening that led to such a sudden increase of Huguenot you know, refugees from France in this era?
0: Well, we, we really have to go back a little bit before the 1680s to understand what happens uh, in that decade and, and really back all the way to 1598, which is uh, when Henry IV, who's the king of France at the time, issues the Edict of Nantes. Uh, and what the Edict of Nantes did was it ended the wars of religion, which had been going on for decades at, at this point in France. These religiously inflected civil wars, by essentially freezing things the way they were in the 1590s. So he said, Protestants, who were a small minority in France, about five to ten percent of the population, could continue to practice their faith in the places that they already were. They couldn't expand. Uh, they could have a number of of liberties. You know, they were uh, allowed to have their own courts, for instance, their own kind of church structure. Uh, so it was really a compromise to try and allow these two peoples to live together, uh, and it didn't mean that there was a there was equality between Catholics and Protestants. Not nothing. Like that, or that they necessarily liked each other very much, but it was, I'd, I'd say, relatively successful for at least a few decades at keeping the sides from fighting too much. Uh, and it's when Louis the Fourteenth, who becomes uh, comes to his majority as king in sixteen sixty, when he comes into power, that he starts kind of gradually chipping away at the Edict of Nantes. So he uh, kind of changes some of the terms of of the Edict. Uh, to take away some of the liberties of the Huguenots. There's a lot of of efforts to try and get them to convert, which are actually pretty successful for a lot of them. So their numbers start to to decline. Um, And in the 1680s, he and and others really start turning the screws. So in 1681, they send Draganods to uh, Huguenot provinces and towns. So these are royal troops, Dragoons, who actually come in and are stationed in Protestants' houses. Um, and basically, they come into your house and say like, okay, you have to feed us, uh, we're going to stay here until you sign this, this uh, abjuration and, and become a Catholic. Uh, so they basically were terrorizing people in, into converting in, in the most Protestant areas of France. Um, and then in 1685, uh, Louis XIV decides to just revoke the Edict of Nantes entirely uh, and at that point force all of the, the kingdom's Protestants to convert to Catholicism. Uh, so there was no option for most people to leave, at least legally. They they had to convert. Uh, that was essentially their only choice. So at that point, the Edict of Nantes was gone uh, and, and uh, Protestantism was illegal.
1: So you have... Um... All these refugees, though, who, as you know, tend to be actually illegal refugees. Um, And then you also, throughout your book, reference, uh, you reference the refuge, as you call it, as a sort of proper noun. Um, So we have refugees, we have the refuge. Uh, What should our listeners have in mind when they hear that phrase?
0: Well, basically, I mean, despite uh, it being illegal to leave France, lots of people do. Uh, which is, I think, kind of a logical reaction to to what Louis XIV is doing. So out of about 750,000 people, Protestants in France in, in 1685, 150,000 of them leave. So most stay, but a very large minority do leave. They sneak out of the kingdom by land or by sea, in kind of whatever direction that they can, uh, mostly settling in other Protestant states that are neighboring France. So the German states, the Netherlands, uh, England. Um, And starting in the 19th century, a French historian named Charles Weiss started to, he labeled these people, they've been labeled refugees from the very beginning, they called themselves refugees, but he created the term le refuge in in French, which then, you know, I translate as the refuge in, in English uh, as a way to refer to these people collectively. And it, and it really caught on with, with historians after that. Um, and I think it's really useful because it underscores the fact that even though these people were in different places, they were all under kind of similar circumstances. And I think they self-consciously thought of themselves as part of a, a transnational body. Uh, so that, that they were all kind of representatives of the people of God in France who had now had to scatter to, to different parts of the world, but they never kind of lost sense of that, that Frenchness.
1: Yeah, so con- continuing on with this discussion of Huguenot self-perception, why did they think of themselves as a chosen people? And why did this status um, as a chosen people matter so much in European politics in the late 17th century.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. I think, I mean, part of it is just a general Christian impulse to believe that persecution makes one special. I mean, this is, you know, goes back to the early Christians that, you know, those who are are imitating Christ most perfectly are the ones who are being Terrorized and and persecuted for their faith. So, in in that sense, what the Huguenots are doing was not really that new or or special that that they saw because they were targets of this, uh, of of this terrible persecution. That this meant that they must be doing something right in in the eyes of God, especially in the face of so many of their fellow Huguenots who in who just converted very quickly. So those who were able to resist and not convert were kind of patting themselves on the back for, for uh, their their forbearance. Uh, but it also, I think, fit really well with the politics of the late 17th century in Europe in general. This was a time uh, Louis XIV was threatening his neighboring Protestant states. In the, in the 70s, he invaded the Netherlands, which was a big deal. Uh, he was uh, you know increasingly seen as a threat by some English Protestants and German Protestants at this time. Uh, so once the Huguenots got outside of France, they could I think very easily kind of present themselves as martyrs you know particular kind of religious martyr who kind of who, who had been victims of this threatening figure that that everyone else was scared of in in Europe as well. And then the third factor I think that's important is that at least some Huguenot thinkers and non-Huguenot thinkers were looking at this in terms of uh, millennialism. So this idea that that the world was about to end and Christ was about to return. Uh, and in the book of Revelation, that's accompanied by great persecution by the forces of Antichrist. So one uh, one theologian in particular, a, a man named Pierre Jaurieux, who's a Huguenot, who's living in the Netherlands at this time, writes uh, a book that kind of basically argues that the Huguenot the persecution of the Huguenots is the sign that uh, Christ is about to return. And then the second part of this argument is like, well, you know, you Protestants in other parts of Europe better take good care of us because we're really, really special people. Uh, so So I think all of those kind of religious and political factors combine to help them make this argument
1: fascinating. So, as this discourse is happening, um, there's also what I found to be a really interesting um, like new idea on the ground in Europe. Um, I often associate the term colony with things that happen in the Americas, uh, at least in the early modern world. Um, but in your book, you describe a new Huguenot policy of colonies within Europe itself. Um, so could you explain what these were and or perhaps what they were meant to be uh, and what the Huguenot leaders were hoping to accomplish with them?
0: Sure. Yeah, it's it's actually an interesting part of the story that the word colony is most often used within Europe uh, by Huguenots and not actually, and they usually use the word plantation if they're talking about America. But uh, and plantation and colony can be synonyms. But but yeah, this word is definitely used a lot in in a European context. Um, I think so. Europe in the late seventeenth century had a lot of land that was not seen as particularly productive by its its rulers. Uh, this was the case, particularly in places that it, that it had destructive wars in the 17th century, which was much of the continent. Uh, and that's really where the, the discourse of, of colonization within Europe came from, is this idea that Huguenots, now that they were outside of France in large numbers, could be used to kind of plug economic holes in, in various parts of Europe. And, and the person who really championed this was Friedrich Wilhelm, the elector of Brandenburg uh, in, in uh, what is now kind of the, the eastern part of Germany, uh, who uh, many of his lands were depopulated from the Thirty Years' War uh, earlier in the century. Uh, he was also a Calvinist, so he had a lot of sympathy for, for the Huguenots. Uh, and he said, well, why don't you come and settle some of these lands that don't have very many people on them? Uh, and the Huguenots said, "That's great. We'd love to, but we we want some things in return. Uh, we want uh, essentially autonomy. We want to have our own French places within your your German state. So we'll have we'll be able to preserve our language and preserve our churches and have our own courts." Uh, so and Friedrich Wilhelm basically said, "Yeah, this this all sounds great." So so that's what these colonies were was. They were subject to a foreign prince, but they were essentially French places that had a great degree of autonomy. And once the Huguenots did this in Germany, this became the model for what they wanted to do elsewhere. They really wanted, the, the goal was for them to create this kind of linked uh, polity of colonies, in many different places that would all kind of help work together to preserve the French church in exile. So they could be in Germany, they could be in Ireland or England, um, and then later on they could be in in overseas colonies like South Carolina or South Africa as well.
1: Uh, Were these European colonies successful? Did they they manage kind of to move from paper to reality or depends on the place?
0: Yeah, it depends on the place. I mean, the my book is full of a lot of failure <laughs> I mean a lot most of the projects in my book don't work out um, interestingly the German colonies which I you know are, are, not, are not a big focus of my book but I talk about a little bit they're probably among the most successful of of the Huguenot colonies anywhere uh, they they do face some of the same forces that other Huguenot colonies do they end up getting. You know, people move out, or there's there's forces of assimilation at work. But at least through the 1780s, there are still kind of recognizably French towns in in parts of Germany. So uh, those are, are a little bit more successful, I would say, than most of them. But it really was kind of a case by case basis, and in places like Ireland, uh, they tend to not not to succeed very well. Mm-hmm.
1: So looking beyond Europe, um, you write that for some Huguenot refugees, quote, finding Eden in a world of empires would not be an easy task, end quote. Uh, Can you tell our listeners more about how these two factors, Eden and empire, worked to drive or draw Huguenots to places far across the sea?
0: Sure. Yeah. So... I, Huguenots were strongly influenced, uh, as were many Europeans, by utopian programs, um, kind of what I what I label as as utopianism uh, in the 17th century. Uh, so, so essentially, uh, the the belief that they could find some sort of perfect society, uh, but that to do this they would have to leave Europe behind and go to some some. Magical place beyond the bounds of Europe, whether that's in in the Americas, and a lot of depictions of the Americas are very Edenic, or or maybe the East uh, a, Asian uh, an, a place in Asia, uh, and really I think the best way to illustrate this with the Huguenots is to to tell a story about the the man who really championed it for them, who was a man named Henri Duquesne, uh, and he was one of the most influential Huguenots uh, in the kingdom. He was the son of Abraham Ducan, who had been Louis XIV's, of prime naval commander he was one of the few people who was actually allowed to leave so he was was uh, his his father bought him a castle in Switzerland and he went off and, and moved there uh, but then he started the scheme in the the late 1680s uh, to settle Huguenots in a place that he called the Isle of Eden and he he wrote a number of tracks about this he talked about how perfect it was and, and he said you know it's great for us to, to be able to have our our own state uh, or, or to to live within other people's states rather, and we appreciate everybody's help, but really we want a place of our own. So we're going to leave Europe behind. We're going to leave all this war and 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 unrest, uh, and just live as people of God in a, a a perfect Eden, essentially. And and I think that kind of idea appealed to a lot of a lot of Huguenots who were living in not so great circumstances in in European cities at this time. Uh, so a lot of people tried to sign up for this plan. And I think that similar impulses were behind a lot of the American settlements as well. Um, but the problem with these dreams of Eden is that you can't just pack up and move halfway across the world. You you need money. Uh, you need someone to support you to do this. And Henri Duquen was a, uh, you know, had a castle, but he didn't have much money. Uh, so you had to go find some sort of champion. And for him, he went to the Dutch uh, East India Company. Uh, and he said, okay, I've, I've, I can raise this, this group of, of uh, refugees. Uh, if you give us enough money, uh, we'll go off and we'll conquer uh, an island for you. It was uh, an island called Ile Bourbon, which is now known as La Réunion. It's a, an island in the Indian Ocean that, that was uh occupied by france at the time and he says we'll go in we'll conquer it we'll make it yours and we'll settle it with with refugees uh and i think this kind of captures the the tension between Eden and Empire, because uh, you know he 's saying one thing to the people he 's trying to recruit like oh we 're going to live in peace and plenty in this tropical paradise, and then he 's going going into the, to the Dutch uh, state and saying like yeah we 're an invasion force we 're going to conquer this land for you and and I think it showed that it was really hard to reconcile these two things. Um, and usually when Eden and empire came up against each other, it was empire that won out over, over Eden.
1: So along those lines, um, you've already discussed kind of the religious meaning behind the Huguenot status as a chosen people and the benefits they got from that. Uh, but as the years advance and uh, perhaps empire gets stronger and initial goodwill and money begins drying up, um, how did the Huguenots change their definition as a chosen people to keep the funding coming?
0: Mm-hmm. sure yeah I, I i think I mean there was a lot of exhaustion about kind of taking care of huguenots after a few years they they remained i think relatively popular people uh but the the amounts of charity went way down after you know by 1688 1689. Uh, especially as war came, and now uh, after 1689, most of the Protestant powers of Europe were actually fighting Louis XIV. So, so they just didn't have a lot to to spare. So it became clear that that the Huguenots would need new arguments. Luckily, they were already practicing them, and it, you know, back actually even into the 1670s before the the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. Um, And what they were doing in a lot of these uh, petitions that they would write, especially to the English, but sometimes to the Dutch or the Germans, uh, was to describe themselves not just as chosen people in religious terms, but chosen people in in economic terms as well. They they adopted the language of political economy, which was uh, really current in Europe at this time. Uh, And especially what they talked about was balance of trade. So this idea that uh, every nation should, uh, should basically sell more than it buys uh, from other nations. So you should produce more than, than you consume. That will allow you to get more of the wor- world's bullion, gold and silver, and will just make you richer. And then you can fight more wars and win more wars. So in a time of war, this was a really powerful argument. And lots of people were, were writing about this in the late 17th century. So the Huguenots said like, well, you know, you, you really want to invest your money in us because we can help you with this balance of trade. And the, the they had lots of different arguments for how they could do this, but their two main arguments were uh, about silk and wine. So these were two goods that, came from Mediterranean regions, especially France. So a, a lot of French silk was purchased by consumers in especially England, uh, and, and even more wine. I mean, the, the wine trade was huge in Europe at this time. Uh, this was something that that the English especially were kind of periodically wringing uh, their hands about. Like, well, why, why can't we get English people to stop consuming all of this French stuff and and sending more of our money out of the kingdom? Um, so the Huguenots offered kind of a nice alternative here. They're like, well, you don't have to stop consuming this stuff. Uh, we'll just make it for you because we're, we're, of course, French and we have all of these skills and we're able to, to uh, make all this stuff to perfection. Um, most of them were just lying about that. The, the vast majority of, of uh, refugees were merchants and lawyers and other people who, who didn't necessarily know how to grow grapes or... or uh, or raise silkworms, but no matter people in England believed them. They they were kind of, it was, it was kind of a convenient fiction. Um, and, and this became kind of their argument to get themselves more special treatment. Um, but what it meant, you know, there, you can't really make good wine in England itself for the Netherlands. Uh, it, it meant going to the colonies. So this is uh, kind of the, the way that um, a lot of Huguenots ended up kind of with one way tickets to, Especially colonial America, but also other colonies around the world.
1: Yeah, you highlight in your book uh, the Carolina colony um, and the Dutch Cape colonies. So, what about these two places were particularly appealing to Huguenot refugees and their supporters?
0: Mm I, I mean, part of it just has to do with silk and wine. These were both places that, at least for the colonials, the colonies boosters, they think that these are particularly apt for. Uh, producing silk and wine, they're at the right latitude. They have the right climate. Uh, they they were sort of right about that about the Cape Colony in South Africa. Not at all right about South Carolina, but that's a that's a whole other thing. Uh, so that was part of it just just that they saw these as environments that would be good for them to to do what they wanted to do. Um, but the political circumstances of each of the colonies helped too. So. Uh, Carolina was a new colony founded in the, the, the chartered in the 1660s. Um, It was run by a group of of English proprietors. The most important was Anthony Ashley Cooper, uh, the Earl of Shaftesbury, who was um, one of the, one of the main kind of anti-Catholic uh, politicians in, in England at the time. So he wanted to help Protestant refugees. He also wanted to find a staple crop and kind of push his colony forward. Uh, and, and the Carolina proprietors issued a lot of Tracts in French, so they wrote actual kind of promotional tracts that had that were extremely popular, so you can find Huguenots writing letters about these tracts and how how persuasive they find them uh, so that was kind of what brought uh, a lot of people there. Uh, the Cape Colony of South Africa was a little bit different because this was run by the Dutch East India Company, so it was kind of their own special fiefdom. Uh, and it was meant to reprovision ships that were on their way to India uh, and in order to do that they wanted a small settlement that would uh, that that would produce at least a few things that then the company could sell to passing ships especially grain and wine because you know people in passing ships need something to drink and it's it's hard to, to uh, provision those ships with wine for the trip all the way to, to India or China uh, and they could find Dutch farmers who would make some grain, but really the wine was a problem. So they went specifically after Huguenots to try and, and fill in that particular gap. Uh, and they didn't produce promotional tracts, but they did kind of wage a, a, a campaign by word of mouth. So they would kind of send word and, and kind of special terms that, that refugees could expect uh, through networks uh, in Europe of, of the refugees. Um, and as a result, both of these places became kind of the main, the, the largest Huguenot overseas colonies. In both cases, uh, about a third of the European population was, was Huguenot in the early years.
1: So we've sort of expanded around the world a little bit. Um, and I wondered if you could tell us about uh, Jacques de Lacasse, who is a, a figure in your book. Um, and you use him to, to talk about the geopolitical pressures that began challenging refugees, um, especially in the 1690s. So who was uh, Lacasse and what can he tell us about the global refuge?
0: Sure. So I, one of the things, I mean, I've always, as a historian, much of what I've done is talk about big processes, uh, especially empires. Uh, And I think one of the problems with that approach is that you can kind of lose track of the human side of, of history. And, uh, and of course, that's complicated by the fact that most people kind of below the level of the elite don't leave a lot of written records. So I wanted to try and and find a way around that. And Jacques Delacasse ended up kind of offering one one way to do it, just because he was he didn't write anything himself, really, aside from a will. But he just left enough traces around the world that he could stand in to kind of demonstrate the global refuge and and kind of how an ordinary person could get caught up in this process. So uh, he left home in south uh, southwestern France uh, in the early 1680s. So as things were kind of starting to get badly, uh, to, to go badly, uh, he moved first to Germany. He joined the Elector of Brandenburg's army for a few years. Uh, apparently that kind of played out and he moved to England. Uh, and there he... Uh, got in with Henri Ducant who I've already mentioned this guy who was going off wanted to go off and and start the isle of eden uh in the indian ocean um and he was one of about 10 people 10 men uh who went off to try to be kind of the advance guard for that colony uh Long story short, they end up basically marooned on a deserted island for for a few years, Uh, and then in prison on another island uh, actually run by the Dutch for a few more years. He travels to Batavia in what is now Jakarta, uh, Indonesia, where he faces trial basically for for treason against the Dutch. Uh, He's acquitted. He comes back to to London, uh, and then once he's in London, he signs up to go off to Virginia to start in in seventeen hundred a colony called Mannequin Town, which is located on the uh, the frontier of Virginia, right where where Richmond is now. Uh, and he ends up uh, he lives the rest of his life there and dies around seventeen oh eight. But what I think is interesting about Lacoste is that you know he he's on this very very global journey. I mean, he goes to. To uh, you know, he's in Africa, Asia, Europe, and North America, uh, essentially. Um, and so, it it seems to be this kind of search for for you know a place where he can finally find freedom. But he's really just doing going where um, empires want him to go. So he's he's kind of signing up on all of these kind of desperate attempts to settle weird parts of the world that. Uh, really have nothing to do with what would be best for the Huguenots. It, it's what would be best for the Dutch East India Company or the uh, the English gentlemen who want to settle this particular part of Virginia. So he's he's you know I don't know if I want to go so far as to call him a pawn in other people's games, but it kind of looks like that at at times. So it it demonstrates kind of the way you can get just kind of swept up as a an ordinary man in late 17th century uh, Europe uh, in these kind of weird geopolitical games that send you all over, all over the planet.
1: So as Huguenots are traveling all around, uh, perhaps willingly or not, um, you you argue in your book that, quote, one may perceive assimilation, whether partial or complete, as just another strategy used by refugees to navigate competing political allegiances. Uh, end quote. So uh, they're traveling, they're assimilating. Uh, what evidence do we have for this assimilation amongst Huguenot refugees in later generations? And why do you see this as a deliberate survival strategy?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, the the evidence for for assimilation is pretty overwhelming, and it's been a a key thing that past historians of Huguenots have argued. I'd say it's kind of the central paradigm of of. Uh, History of the refugees is that they they disappear. So John Butler, who wrote the last book on on Huguenots and Colonial America, uh, he said everywhere they went, everywhere they disappeared. So that's kind of the the paradigm, and and he traced this through mostly through social history kinds of sources. Uh, so the French language stops being used in correspondence. Uh, we see a lot of out-marriage, so the second generation of, of refugees are for the most part not marrying other children of refugees, they're marrying outside their community, uh, they're, they're moving away from their kind of specifically Huguenot towns and just settling more generally in, in the, the colonies or states that, that they're living in, um, so I think there's really no doubt that it's happening. Uh, what I'm trying to do, I, I think, in my book is push back a, against that interpretation a little bit, or, or the second part of that interpretation, which which argues that this is kind of the end of the... It shows that the kind of Huguenot bonds were weak to begin with, and that they, they were just kind of uh, an, an, an insignificant people who then just kind of quickly faded away. Because I think if you look back... Uh, Even into the 17th century France, before the revocation, you see that this is very often a Huguenot strategy to try to kind of basically hold on to what's important in terms of your faith and community by outwardly conforming, Uh, and you even see this sometimes up to the point of pretending to be Catholic, but uh sometimes not not quite that far but they'll kind of get in you know being like very loyal to the king for instance even when the king is is your is a catholic who doesn't doesn't like you very much um and i think once once you see refugees settling in other people's states there's a, a argument from the very beginning from some refugees that like, well, now it's our duty. You know, these people have, have given us this great largesse of, of, uh, land or aid or whatever. So now it's, you know, we need to just kind of shut up and, 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 uh, uh, obey them. Uh, and that's a real kind of, uh, uh obvious, uh, theme that you see kind of throughout refugees life. But what's interesting, I think is that you can also find evidence beneath the surface that, a lot of this assimilation is more outward than inward. Uh, So you have people who will use English uh, outside their community, but will still use French within it. Uh, Or you'll have churches, for instance, uh, like French Calvinist churches, that will become, they'll join the Church of England, they'll become Anglican uh but they're still having their services in French and if you read the sermons they actually look pretty similar to what a French calvinist sermon would would look like. So I think it's important not to take this assimilation too far that this is, you know, a way for them to gain more advantages within a system that they're, you know, a very small minority in and they're often objects of suspicion because You know they're French, and the English are fight or the Dutch are fighting the French. Uh, So this is just another way I think for them to hold on to what's important by kind of giving up their outward signs of Frenchness.
1: So even in some of the uh, colonies that are more uh, favorable towards Protestants, some Huguenots are still facing uh, tricky situations with their Frenchness and that uh, that sort of thing.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, to to call them persecuted in in uh, comparison to other groups at this time, is probably not right, but certainly they're objects of suspicion, uh, particularly during wartime. So you find this in, you know, New England at one point passes a law that all French people should register with the government. Uh, it's unclear if that's ever enforced. Uh, in England, there's there's quite a bit of of just the kind of usual anti-immigrant uh sentiment that you see whenever there's a large group of immigrants like you know they're they're weird they're they're gonna take our jobs their their religion isn't right so you definitely see that from time to time and it and it kind of encourages many of them to keep a lower profile
1: So as your narrative moves into the 18th century, you highlight the importance of the Church of England, like you sort of just talked about, uh, the military and trade networks to Huguenots seeking to promote themselves and their Protestantism. So what was the appeal of these institutions in particular to refugees and their descendants? Well, I think,
0: I mean, it goes, it's, it's an, it comes out of this desire to assimilate and to get kind of as close to the state's uh, that we're welcoming them as as they can. I mean, essentially, you know, as I said earlier, the goal at first was to have this kind of state within a state, uh, these Huguenot networks uh, that would kind of preserve the the church. So so eventually they could go home. You know, in the first years they thought like, well, this will be a few years, and then we'll we'll go back to France. By the 18th century, it was clear that they weren't going to be welcomed back in France anytime soon. So many of them kind of shifted their strategy. Uh, to to the states that that welcomed them, and especially to to institutions within those states. Uh, so the, the church, which I've I've uh, already mentioned. Uh, and uh, the military, which had been important for for Huguenots, as as the Jacques de la story indicates, kind of back to the the 1680s. Um, and but what I think is interesting about this is that they're using these institutions in some cases to actually continue to foster a more international uh, Protestant orientation. They're they're essentially trying to push these institutions to. Uh, defend kind of the Huguenots and people like the Huguenots. So the Church of England is a is a great example of this because it's the national church of England, and and in the past it's been seen as being kind of narrowly English in a lot of ways, and not not a great friend to the Protestant churches of the continent, for for instance. Uh, but with Huguenots kind of active in the church, they're really pushing the Church of England to help refugees, not just French refugees, but German, Hungarian, you know, other other Protestant refugees around the continent to really make themselves kind of a a symbol of of the international Protestant cause, um, and the merchant networks that I talk about uh, as well. This is another way to do that. They're they're kind of anchored uh, in kind of English or Dutch uh, society. They're they're kind of moving goods between the metropole and the colonies, uh, but they're also serving to kind of keep these Huguenot networks alive. So they're they're not only trading with other Huguenots, but they're often trading with other Huguenots. So they kind of uh, keep the, you know, the, the refuge alive, even though kind of its original purpose, which was to move back to France, was not really, not really there anymore. Yeah.
1: So as we've talked about, your book traces the assimilation of Huguenots into their new host cultures. Um, But then as I was reading, I was kind of shocked because your last chapter, suddenly the topic of Huguenot colonies reemerges all of a sudden. So why, after so many years of assimilation, did this old idea reappear in the second half of the 18th century? And how is this latter form different from the original um, in that kind of first groundswell of uh, refugees?
0: Well, I think it never fully disappeared. It just kind of went dormant for a while because the circumstances didn't didn't kind of require it to to the same extent. Uh, but it was shocking to me. I mean, I, when I started reading about the seventeen sixties, that so many of the arguments from earlier came back uh, in almost exactly the same form. In fact, they sometimes use the same texts uh, as they did in the in the earlier period. And I I think that there's two things that are really pushing this. Uh, one is what's happening in France itself. So France, you know, most Protestants stayed in France. Uh, they converted to Catholicism outwardly, but many of them remained Protestants kind of in the breach. And in the 18th century, they started kind of slowly rebuilding their church in exile. Uh, and one of the things that they did was they kept making arguments to the king uh, and, and the king's ministers that, well, you really want to bring back some sort of edict of Nantes and tolerate us, or else we're going to leave. And they pointed to the original migration of the 1680s and 90s as something that had really weakened France. They said, you know, you had all these productive people and you chased them out. Uh, and this was something that even a lot of French Catholics were coming to believe that that had been a, a mistake that what Louis XIV had done, but for largely for economic reasons. Um, and they said, well, a lot of us are still here, but now we're going to go if you don't, if you don't reverse course. Um, and they, they made these arguments kind of periodically across the 1740s and 50s. Um, and in the 60s, things started to get bad enough, especially at the tail end of the Seven Years' War, that at least some of them were starting to to uh, want to make good on this threat. You know, they're like, well, if we don't leave, they're never going to make things better if some of us don't leave. Uh, so uh, a, a minister named Jean-Louis Gibert in particular uh, who's been kind of helping to rebuild the church in in uh, the province of St. uh goes to England and basically gets uh, the promise of of aid to get some land somewhere in in North America, which ends up being a colony uh, in the upcountry of South Carolina. Uh, and I think the second thing that helps helps this this. Uh, come into fruition is that the English are once again, very obsessed with these same political economic questions and it comes back to silk and wine. Again, it's, it's uh, you know, we, we, they're looking in the wake of the seven years war. They're trying to reimagine the way empire works. They're already kind of looking at the the problems with consumption that will be uh, central to the American revolution. Basically, we don't want the, the colonies to manufacture anything because that's what England does. Uh, so why don't they produce all this stuff that we've always wanted them to produce and they never have? And Jean-Louis Gilbert is like, yeah, sure, I know how to make silk. Um, and so they end up kind of creating the impetus for a new migration. It's very small. It's it's only a few hundred people. Gilbert says, oh, I can get 10,000 people to move. Uh, he's 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 not able to. Uh, So it never even gets close to the original migration, but I think it's still interesting in that it shows this massive continuity between, you know, over almost a century that Huguenots are still able to get the ears of people in power by talking about, A, we're persecuted religious, you know, people, and B, we have these great special skills.
1: So we've talked about continuity. Now to turn to change, uh, you conclude by discussing the American and French revolutions impact on the refuge. Uh, And these revolutions are often the endpoint for historical narratives in the early modern world. But you argue that this is actually there's actually really good reasons uh, to use these revolutions at endpoints as an endpoint when discussing the refuge. Um, They're not just a convenient stopping place. Uh, so why is it, as you say, that, quote, more than anything else, the Age of Revolution brought an end to the conditions that had allowed the Huguenots to prosper in a world of states and empires, end quote?
0: So the it, it's a little bit ironic, given that, that the Huguenots were victims of Louis XIV, that they learned to work very well in an old regime world. So they they knew how to deal with systems of patronage and hierarchies that were common in in early modern Europe and kind of its colonial extensions, so particularly kings and princes, and churches and established and and not established churches, merchant networks uh, and and trading companies, um, and and they were really you know by by the middle of the eighteenth century very adept at using kind of this this the language that was common in in this system. Uh, and they were a bit bewildered when kind of the revolution I mean, first the American and then the French revolutions kind of uh created new political languages i mean languages of republicanism uh and languages of the nation state uh and and they were pretty bad at at kind of changing the way they were thinking and I use an example in the book uh, of a guy named jean henri uh, de beranger uh who i think demonstrates this he's a a former is a retired Prussian military officer. And his uncle dies in the 1770s, in actually in the 1760s, in South Carolina, and he has this like 20-year attempt to to get his inheritance, uh, which involves writing to lots of different kings and ambassadors, and and he's right on the verge of getting it done because he's able to kind of use his his various Huguenot connections when the revolution happens, uh, and and then he tries to continue after the revolution. He writes letters to you know, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin, as well as, uh, in, in the craziest example, Louis, the 16th, because he thinks as, as an ally to, to, uh, uh, to the Americans, he can kind of help, help them get his inheritance. Um, and he finds that the old language that Huguenots use this kind of language that combines religion with loyalty, you know, my people have been loyal to, uh, to, to these particular uh, kings or monarchs going way back, it just doesn't work anymore. Uh, and and I think that you know what you see after the revolutions is that Huguenots are still there. I mean, they don't go anywhere, uh, but they don't have their networks have kind of been broken up. Uh, and they're not able to have the same influence, so they just became become they kind of remake themselves as characters in a number of different national histories. So, in the U.S., for example, the Huguenot descendants are like, "Yeah, we were the original freedom fighters. We were you know the the proto American revolutionaries," um, which is very much a kind of after the fact uh, definition. But they're they're never kind of as central to the story again as they were before the revolution.
1: Yeah. So uh, to kind of go big picture, your book is called The Global Refuge. Uh, and indeed, readers will find uh, themselves traveling all over from Normandy to Suriname and Cape Town, St. Kitts, Acadia, La Reunion, uh, just to name a few places. Uh, so what do you think we gain from taking a global perspective on the history of the Huguenots? Well, the,
0: so the many historians have looked at Huguenots over the years. Uh, but they have never been taken that seriously by the field, I would say, I think largely because in any one given place, they were pretty small and insignificant. So in France, they're a small minority. French historians tend to see it as kind of a, a side interest. Uh, in England, they're not that big, or the the Netherlands. In colonial America, they're very, very small compared to, to many other migrant groups. Uh, so I think one could make a, an argument like, oh, these this is sort of a, a, a curiosity, but not particularly important. Uh, but I think if we step back and look at the story globally, it actually appears much more important. That the what what makes the Huguenots special was not that there were a lot of them necessarily, but that they were in a lot of different places and that they were able to build networks with each other and then with other people, uh, you know, other co-religionists from from other nations uh, that gave them this really outsized importance for for quite a number of decades in in the 17th and 18th centuries. So I think it's a great example of how, um, you know, you can't just, at least for certain subjects, uh, confine your approach to just one place or one nation, that a lot of times it's the links between those different places that are important. Um, and finally, I just hope that I can kind of make the argument to historians of Europe uh, that looking at this global angle is, is important, that, that uh, a lot of people in early modern Europe had a global vision, even in the 17th century. Um, and this can help us to understand all sorts of, you know, certainly religious minorities like Puritans or Quakers or Moravians, but I think any, any number of people, I think this global this global approach is uh, can 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 help clarify a lot of different issues in European history.
1: Nice. I mean, you've certainly uh, expanded your own study from you said you started with the American uh, West. Right. And then moved east and to Europe and now you're in the the globe. So uh, you've kind of taken that uh, to heart. Um, but what has your work on the Global Refuge led you to now? So where, uh, what sort of projects do you have on the future or uh, what directions are you looking into these days?
0: Well, I'm, I'm working on a number of things right now, but the thing that I think is most relevant to to my work on the Global Refuge is uh, I'm looking at 16th century uh, French colonialism in the Atlantic world. Uh, and in particular, the, uh, a colony that the French attempt to found in Florida from 1562 to 1565, which is mostly led by Huguenots. So that's kind of the connection to my to my previous work that a lot of Protestants were really uh, active in this in this French colonial program, and it was closely tied to actually the beginnings of the war wars of religion uh, in in the 1550s and 60s. Um, and I'm trying to use this as a way to investigate something else that's that's of interest to me, which is really the origins of, of colonialism, uh, which I'm, I've really become convinced is not, you know, when everyone talks about kind of British origins of colonialism coming out of the lost colony of Roanoke and Jamestown, uh, I think it actually predated that and a lot of its origins were French and that we can see kind of in this French story, uh, a lot of the, the roots of what become colonial America. So uh, in that way, I mean, I'm, I'm still sticking with the Huguenots a little bit, but I'm definitely kind of, I, I think I've, I've moved more and fully onto the French side and I'm trying to do something a little bit more local and not quite so global in the next book.
1: Well, that sounds like a great project. And I look forward to hearing about what you discover uh, whenever, whenever you publish it. <laughs> um, and again, thank you so much, Owen, for being on the show today. I really enjoyed talking with you and reading the book. Um, and to our audience, thank you for joining us for this discussion of The Global Refuge, Huguenots in an Age of Empire by Owen Stanwood. Uh, I've been your host, Elspeth Curry, and you've been listening to new books in early modern history. Take care.